0: What's the time? It's time to get L! L. What's the time? It's time to get L! what's the time? It's time to get L! what's the time? It's time to get L. 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 L! Hello everybody and welcome to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a Senior Policy Analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. Uh, This is episode what 120, yeah 120 of the podcast. So we're not a new podcast anymore. But for those of you out there just tuning in for the first time, basically what we do here on the podcast is uh, I invite an author on to discuss a book of theirs that's been newly published or recently published. You know something on something we think you guys would like to hear a conversation about. And then you know hopefully at the end of the podcast or. Even in the middle of the podcast, if you get your druthers about you, you go ahead and uh, purchase the book yourself and uh, give it a read. So if you like this podcast, please consider giving Illiteracy a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show, and also by sharing with your friends, as that's the uh, best way to support programming like this. And my guest today is Dr. Kevin R.C. Gutzman, and Dr. Gutzman is professor of history at Western Connecticut State University and a faculty member at libertyclassroom.com. Uh, His books include The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Constitution, Virginia's American Revolution from Dominion to Republic, 1776 to 1840, and James Madison and the Making of America. And lastly, he is the author of The Jeffersonians, The Visionary Presidencies of Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe, which was originally published back in December by St. Martin's Press, and is the book we'll be discussing today. So, uh, Dr. Gutzman, thank you so, so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. I'm happy to be here. Great. So, what made you want to write this book? Uh, you know, you're kind of stepping into the the shoes of of Henry Adams here, you know. And uh, for a book that's been basically canonized by the Library of America, it's in their uh, collection. Uh, you know, so what was the what was the genesis of it? I mean, you're going even beyond Henry Adams. You're doing the, this whole uh, a book, a history of the the three presidencies in a row of uh, Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe. Which, um, off the top of my head, when I was thinking about this, when I was reading the book, is like I don't know if I know of any other book really that that um, that uh, is basically about those three presidencies in a row like that.
1: Well, um, my book two books ago, which is called James Madison and the Making of America was a constitutional biography of Madison. It was about Madison's career as constitution maker. And I had the Pulitzer winning historian, Daniel Walker Howe, write me a cover blurb for it. He gave me the blurb. He said, I quite enjoyed your book, but I wish you had devoted more space to Madison's presidency. Of course, (laughs) Madison's presidency wasn't really the subject (laughs) of that book. But um, after I finished my intervening book, which is about Thomas Jefferson's political program, I turned to this idea of Madison's presidency. And thinking about that, I realized, well, really one couldn't understand that without looking at Jefferson's presidency during which Madison was secretary of state. Mm. And um, then, of course, although the classic periodization is that there's some kind of break in 1815, Madison and his congressional supporters didn't think there was a break in 1815. And James Monroe, who was At one point, both Secretary of War and Secretary of State in the Madison administration certainly didn't think there'd been any kind of a break in 1815. Essentially, when Jefferson gave his first inaugural address in 1801, he was laying out, he couldn't know it at the time, but now we can see, Mm. he was laying out the program that the three of them and their congressional supporters were going to follow for 24 years. So it seemed to me, uh, as you say, there was a kind of Historians like to say lacuna in historiography, right? There's an obvious opening Mm -hmm. for somebody to write an account of this. And I realized that there were some ways in which traditional treatments of Jefferson's and Madison's presidencies didn't really satisfy me. So there I leapt. I agree that Henry Adams is a hard act to follow, (laughs) uh, but um, I think I take a bit different of an approach from Henry Mm -hmm. Adams'. Anyway, that explains the genesis of the project. Gotcha. So, uh,
0: the three, the three men—Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe—what is, what was, what was the relationship like between the three of them? Uh, and are they all sort of generally? I, I mean, they're basically all generally the same in, in, uh, in philosophy and policy and in, the, in their views.
1: Yes, well, um, I think that Jefferson and Madison are the two best friends who've ever been president. Each of them was the the other's best friend in the Mm -hmm. world. And if James Monroe and Jefferson or James Monroe and Madison had been the two of these guys who'd been president, they still would have been the best friends who've ever been president. Mm -hmm. The three of them were very close politically. They were very close personally. They essentially understood the world, government, America's place in the world, the significance of the American Revolution in the same way, and they really didn't have any significant political differences, although there was a bit of a quarrel, uh, kind of an unstated quarrel uh, over the question who would be Jefferson's successor. Monroe thought it ought to be Monroe, Um, (laughs) and so there's a bit of a falling out, kind of an unstated falling out between Madison Monroe there in the middle of the book, but it's, it's resolved by the time Monroe's elected president. Mm.
0: So which one of the three would you consider to be the most Jeffersonian?
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: well, uh, I do c- certainly think that Monroe was the most successful president of the three. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we can get into why that is, but it, it does seem clear to me that each of them was Jeffersonian. That is, they had the same, more or less the same political principles. They had the same foreign policy goals. They didn't really have any significant break in their legislative program over the 24 years. Um, There are ways in which you could say from time to time, one or the other of them did kind of deviate from the hard party line and... Of course, they had allies in Congress and outside Congress who would make that clear. Uh, but it seems to me that the, the reason why the story is interesting is because, for the most part, it's one continuous administration.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So before we get into the actual administrations themselves, just about, more about a little bit of background on the three of them, what, are, uh, what were they like personality-wise? Do they have similar personality traits or are they, uh, you know, odd couples or uh, anything like that?
1: Well, uh, I hope that a reader, a careful reader of the book, will (laughs) see what the differences are among them.
2: Mm.
1: I guess I'll start with Madison because his personality is the easiest to describe. He was bookish, kind of quiet in a big group. So famously, his wife was the hostess of Washington. And the reason for that was that in a big group, James would like to stand in the corner and talk to two other people all night while right. Dolly was talking to the other 150 people in attendance.
0: Yeah, they, uh, they complimented each other very well. Yes, yes, they did. <laughs> and
1: so James Madison was very inward looking and very studious. And for people who think they have a kind of understanding of him from encountering him in high school, Probably what you think you know of him is correct. That's the way his personality worked. He was, of course, a fellow with a very, very acute intelligence and a very finely honed mind. He had had an excellent education and it had shaped his political views, too. Jefferson um, was equally studious uh, with Madison, although in different ways and was a completely different kind of Companion. So he did like to have uh, large groups of people around himself and played the kind of bell of the ball for himself. And part of the reason he had to do that was that he was a widower, he was single, yeah. By the, by the time he came into the White House. But there, there is a kind of um, introductory level understanding of Jefferson as a fellow who liked to have. Large gatherings of other intelligent people and have witty and well informed conversations with them. Although I do provide in the book a uh, rather jaundiced account of one of those occasions from mm-hmm. John Quincy Adams, whose fascinating diary is just uh, spangled with jaundiced accounts of this and that. <laughs> so uh, there those Adamses are again. <laughs> so, anyway, the. Um, the experience of, of being at one of Jefferson's White House dinners was completely different from being at one of Madison's. He was, Jefferson was kind of the maestro of the affair. On the other hand, Monroe was different from the other two fellows in that he did not have the finely honed intellect that Jefferson and Madison had. And the reason for that was that he, being slightly younger, happened to have been 18 years old in 1776. So he was one of several young men at the College of William and Mary who quit school to go join the Continental Army. And he became an authentic war hero, not not mm-hmm. the kind of fellow who's called a war hero because he was in a war. Monroe was actually a, a hero in one of the pivotal battles in the Revolution. And in fact, he um, was bedridden for several weeks because of his wounds and had a musket ball in his forearm for the rest of his life. Yeah, Trenton. He's
0: right in the painting, right behind Washington. Correct,
1: correct. So he was not the well-educated one that the other two were, but what he did was that he appointed two brilliant fellows to take the prime seats in his cabinet. One was the aforementioned John Quincy Adams. The other one was John C. Calhoun. And Adams and Calhoun, both really brilliant arguably each was the the outstanding incumbent in his office in the 19th century Mm -hmm. calhoun at war and adams at state and almost invariably they gave him good advice and he took it so the way that um the way that calhoun recalled uh monroe was to say well it's true that he wasn't brilliant but he had very good judgment and i think that's true i think we can develop in our conversation that uh while Jefferson and Madison both were brilliant pr- from time to time they didn't have good judgment and that's kind of one of the main stories of the central part of the book and uh, Monroe was not like that at all so he was he was uh, I wouldn't say introspective but he was aware of his limitations mm. and this is what you want in a president of course the the process we have for choosing presidents now isn't calculated to to uh, select for people who are aware of their own limitations. (laughs) Uh, But in those days, things worked differently and you could end up with a um, fellow with good principles who wasn't a genius, but knew a genius when he saw one and could be counted on usually to make the right decisions. And that's what Monroe was. Yeah. He's more of
0: a natural leader in that respect than either Jefferson or, or Madison. Uh, yes,
1: Madison was not a, a natural leader at all. No. He, he really uh, at one point in the book, I, I say something to the effect that uh, Madison had all the attributes you would want in a second in command. <laughs> like, so he was he was well cut out to be the last fellow who read the speech before the leader read it to the public. Right. Right. right exactly. um, but Monroe had been an, an army officer and a, a very fine one. And, um, really was cut out for this job, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah.
0: All right. So, uh, one more question before we get into their administrations, uh, because they're, they're all three Virginians, right. uh, growing up in, in late colonial Virginia. So what was, uh, what was Virginia, what was the Virginia that they were born and raised in like, you know, and w- uh, what is their world? How is that their upbringing? Uh, granted, they have, you know, not similar upbringings, but growing up in that in that time and place, what what effect is that going to have on them uh, going forward in the future?
1: Well, we think about half of adult white males of sound mind in Virginia in 1776 were illiterate. Mm. So these three fellows would have been highly atypical, especially Jefferson and Madison. I, I alluded before to the fact that I think is almost universally known in america that both of them were brilliant and very very well educated and this was not an accident Uh, peter jefferson was the wealthiest man in albemarle county and james monroe um, james madison senior was the wealthiest man in orange county and both thomas jefferson and james madison were oldest sons and what that would have meant in colonial Virginia was under the rules of primogeniture and entail that they still to inherit the entire estates, the entire enormous landed estates of their fathers. Monroe was not from quite that high up in the Virginia hierarchy, but he still was the kind of fellow who could whose family could afford to have him uh, be tutored privately and then sent off to William and Mary, which was an experience that only the wealthy could afford so to some extent, all three of them were from rich families. But uh, in Jefferson's and Madison's case, we need to we need to accentuate that a little more.
0: Mm. So. Um, what was I say? So uh, moving to the beginning of the book, and I mean, you start, obviously, uh, the book with uh, Jefferson's first inaugural address, which is a remarkable speech. Um, not, not just for the, uh, because of the text, but because of all the subtext to it as well. But, uh, what was the American political scene like in the, in the 1790s leading up to, uh, Jefferson's inauguration of the revolution of 1800? Uh, uh, what were the philosoph- philosophical and the, uh, policy positions of Uh, the Federalists on the one side and the the Jeffersonian Republicans on the other?
1: Well, first about the political scene It's kind of hard to recall that to some extent people in the 1790s were Determined that what was essentially an experimental situation having a federal union among these 13 newly independent states um, That it had to turn out the right way if it didn't turn out the right way, then the revolution would have been a waste of effort. So party politics in the 1790s were violent. They were rhetorically violent and sometimes they were physically violent. And um, one famous account of them said that uh, uh, men who had known each other for decades would cross the street rather than say hello, right? It was just bad. And the reason was that people thought that their principles had to be reflected in public policy or the revolution wouldn't have been worth the effort. So you ended up with, what ended up being the case was, to the surprise of virtually everybody, there ended up being two political parties. People hadn't thought there'd be political parties in general, but there ended up being these two political parties with significantly different appraisals of what the revolution had been for underlying them. And Jefferson thought, And this was a common idea among his followers. He thought that the outcome of the of the election of 1800 had been a kind of revolution. He called the revolution of 1800 by revolution. In this instance, he had in mind the old uh, meaning of the word revolution that kind of uh, turning the wheel back to the situation before. Before what? Before Alexander Hamilton's program at the Treasury Department had been instantiated into federal policy. So they thought, the leading Republicans, intellectuals among the Republican opposition of the 1790s thought that Hamilton as Treasury Secretary was trying to assimilate the federal government to the British model. He was trying to make the Treasury Secretary's office kind of driver of national policy and that what he had in mind was to prefer particular individuals, particular class of people, particular kinds of industry and guide them with public subventions, and so carve out a significant place for a small leading elite in American society. And as far as the opposition, who called themselves Republicans, meaning by implication that Hamilton and his followers weren't Republican, um, what they had in mind was that the government should not be doing these things. It should essentially leave open to people to make their own economic decisions. It shouldn't be preferring particular firms or particular lines of business, but instead um, should let people carve out their places in the economy for themselves. Besides that, of course, uh, one concomitant of Hamilton's program was a significantly increased place for the federal government in American, in the American economy and American society. And this was contrary to, especially in the, in the uh, minds of the people who are the key figures in my book, this was contrary to the way the Federalists had explained the Constitution in the Virginia Ratification Convention of 1788. So in the Virginia Ratification Convention of 1788, um, the Federalists, including Madison as one of the leaders of the Federalist group in the, in the convention, had said that this new government was only going to have the enumerated powers. It was going to have a limited place in society. It was not to be feared in terms of people's individual rights because it wasn't being given power to infringe on people's individual rights. It was only going to have a few functions. And Hamilton, uh, in the cabinet and um, in his interactions with people in Congress who ended up essentially accepting his ideas, Hamilton did not agree with this at all. He thought that the new constitution provided an opportunity for assimilating the United States economy to the British model. And he said things in public. In fact, he had, of course he had said in the Philadelphia convention that wrote the constitution that he thought uh, America ought to have uh, a chief executive who served for life. He should appoint the senators who should serve for life. He should appoint the governors. And, and of course, people hearing this would have thought, well, that sounds like George, right? So this is why this is one reason why the opposition called themselves Republicans, Mm. meaning Hamilton's not a Republican. So, um, when the revolution of, when the election of 1800 favored the Republicans, people like Jefferson believed, well, this was the end of it. So they, now we know that it was true, but uh, it seems rather presumptuous at the time for him to have thought that when finally the Republicans won control of Congress, in one control of the executive branch that meant the argument was over and the federalists were done for. And of course, by the time we get around to Monroe's being reelected, it was true. He got all but one electoral vote the second time he was elected. And the one elector who voted against him was a fellow Republican. (laughs) There essentially were no federalists left. And um, that's what Jefferson hoped would be the case. That's what his inaugural, his first inaugural address is really about. We're, he said, famously, we've called by different names brethren of the same principle. We're all Republicans. We're all Federalists. What he thought was essentially, Americans agree with me. They agree with me about what the revolution was for. They've agreed with me this whole time. The only reason we had this Hamilton problem, and he saw it as a problem, was that George Washington had a unique purchase on Americans' hearts, and then for some reason, he he deferred to this Hamilton. So now that was over, and we could get on with having the American Republican society that these people thought the revolution had been about. of course I could tell this story from Hamilton's point of view too, but that's not what the book's about.
0: Right. No. Do you think, do you think we would have made it uh, without having Washington as the first president? Uh, Because a lot of the, um, the partisanship and the the back and forth was really muted, uh, especially during his first, term or so, because both sides were trying to, uh, or because Washington was so respected as uh, a man and for what he had done uh, during the revolution that, uh, you know, they didn't want to sort of um, sully his administration with uh, with this, uh, you know, the back and forth stuff. Do you think uh, if anyone else would have been, say, if Washington just said, I'm absolutely not serving uh you know <laughs> uh, i will not accept the nomination if if offered and will not run and will not serve that sort of thing like like sherman um do you think we would have made it if somebody else other than washington had been president first or do you think well, it would have just fallen, who, fallen apart
1: i'm one who believes that he really was essential yeah i think he was essential to having the philadelphia convention mm-hmm. i think he was essential to the philadelphia convention's producing a constitution I think he was essential to its ratification. I think he, he, of course, he was essential to winning the war in the first place. Yes, I I think he's the most important man in American history. Mm. Um, But the thing is, uh, in the 1790s, the politics became so fraught that by the end of his administration, Jeffersonian allied newspapers were actually attacking him personally. That's true. This had never happened before. Yeah. And he was, shall we say, a bit perturbed about that. So, um, however, again, um, yes, he. without him, I, I can't see how any of it could have turned out. It, it doesn't seem to me that any of it would have worked.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: All right. Well, speaking of Washington's, um,
0: not the man this time, but the city. Uh, what was what was Washington like as a city during this period? Or I mean, you can't even really call it. A city <laughs> at this time. It's just basically, you know, a couple, uh, a couple buildings next to a swamp, next to a river, essentially, at this point.
1: Yes, it is a swamp. Yes, <laughs> it is a, a, it is a sacrifice to serve in Congress because one has to go live in that place. There's nobody there. There are lots of bugs in the air. There's, there are putrid smells at particular times of the year all the time. Um, And, of course, virtually everybody who's going to be in in company with you is is going to be male because even most congressmen are not going to be able to afford to take their families. Uh, In fact, at one point in the book, I I described then-Congressman Calhoun's uh, initiative in Congress to have congressmen paid salaries. To that point, they hadn't been paid salaries. Calhoun entered Congress during the uh, Madison administration. From South Carolina, and he the the way he explained that there should be congressional salaries was he said, um, I've seen people with ability come here and they leave after a couple of terms, and the reason is they can't afford to bring their families. Mm-hmm. So just giving somebody a per diem allowance for a boarding house isn't adequate. If we want to have the best kind of people in Congress, we need to pay them more than that, right? So. I'm not saying that because I necessarily agree that Calhoun's idea was a good idea. But my point <laughs> is to have you think about the way the the congressional experience was working when he was saying this, right? It was just, it was just miserable. He yeah, in a bunch
0: of dudes yeah, in boarding houses, sleeping, you know, 10 right. to a room or whatever.
1: Yes. <laughs> so the whole thing was, shall we say, not glamorous. In fact, at one point in the book, I have a British minister come to Washington, D.C., and And uh, give some detail about his description of the place when he's writing home to the British, other people in the British government, and he says essentially, "This place is a joke, right? This is just—I can't stand being here." And his wife liked it even less. Well, so uh, that's the famous, what's called the Mary affair during the Jefferson administration. And of course, Jefferson played this up. He, when he, he was the first president to welcome a British minister to the United States and um, he met him uh, wearing, uh, I guess a night robe and slippers Which of course this other fellow with his ceremonial sword and his his velvet jacket didn't think was very respectful And of course Jefferson didn't intend to be respectful when he had first encountered George the George had turned his back on him So here's what you get back. Yeah, I think was, it was a calculated insult. Yes it yeah. was an intentional insult and uh, so that's that's a story that runs through a large part of the first third of the book, the relationship between Jefferson and, and Minister Mary. Mm-hmm. Uh, another
0: guy who's going to be a prominent figure uh, in the book, probably the fourth most prominent figure, is uh, Albert Gallatin, yes. who is Jefferson and Madison's secretary of treasury madison also wants him for secretary of state uh but that doesn't happen but uh tell us more about uh albert gallison because he's a, a one of the most important figures uh of the whole um early american period and uh people don't I mean, there's people don't know much about him or you know he's not a, a figure uh that gets a lot of uh the press that the other founding Uh, fathers do but uh, so tell us about uh, Gallatin and why he's such a sort of uh, important figure in this period.
1: Well I'll start with that second. Um, Gallatin was in the 1790s essentially the only Republican in Congress who could argue finances with Hamilton. So he ended up being the the pivotal figure in Congress when it came to financial matters from a Republican point of view and gallatin was like jefferson he was a brilliant fellow who knew about all kinds of unrelated major issues and major topics and and he's the kind of fellow you'd think uh you know you'd like to go to dinner with just to talk with um but how did he come to be this way well he was from european nobility on both sides his father's name gallatin came from the uh, italian noble name Galatini, and there had been people named Galatini among the founders of Geneva, Switzerland, and apparently in the th- three centuries, I think, be- before Galatini's birth, there had been five uh, chief executives of Geneva whose name was Galatini, so he was descended from these people. They weren't collateral relatives. They were his actual ancestors, mm-hmm. and um, his mother's name was Durozy, so she was a f- from French nobility, And what this meant for Gallatin in in Switzerland was he had the best education a Swiss boy could have. He went to the best schools. He excelled in all of them. And people thought he had a bright future in business or in government or who knew what. But then when he got to be a teenager, he announced to his family, I'm bored with Geneva. I'm going to North America. And you might have thought, why on earth? way you choose north america and you know there's a kind of potted saying among and, historians and not
0: even not even uh, sorry sorry to interrupt but not even just like going to north america and just going to boston or philadelphia or new york but he, he just basically just heads out
1: to like the middle of nowhere in pennsylvania right right well uh, you know there's this there's this kind of potted saying among historians dukes don't emigrate and galatini galton was the exception so but he, he got a friend of his who all the two of them didn't know English, but they came to the United States. And within a short time, he was teaching Gallatin was teaching French at Harvard. So yeah. I guess he learned English by teaching French at Harvard. And then they, you know, they went to a couple of other places and they kind of eh, this isn't really doing it for us. So Gallatin ends up, as you say, going to Western Pennsylvania, which you might think was not the cure for boredom. Right. But in Western Pennsylvania, he gets there more or less at the same time as the Whiskey Rebellion breaks out. And there he is, newly arrived Swiss guy. And by the way, another thing to know about him is he was very odd looking, very odd looking. So this odd looking guy with thick French accent has just arrived in Western Pennsylvania. And he had he was one of the people who um, they had a conference of some of the participants and. Gallatin was kind of the penman of the group as they write their pronunciamento about what this was all about. And so when President Washington and Alexander Hamilton led troops out toward western Pennsylvania and then Washington handed them off to Hamilton, apparently Hamilton had a list of people he was going to arrest that had Gallatin's name on it. So apparently he was going, what he had in mind was to try Gallatin for treason which I I don't know if you're Swiss, can you commit treason against the United States? That's an interesting (laughs) question. But anyway, uh, he didn't find Gallatin. But people in in Pennsylvania appreciated Gallatin's efforts. And uh, by all accounts, too, he had a very appealing personality. So people just really liked him. Mm -hmm. And they ended up electing him to the lower house of the Pennsylvania legislature and then to the upper house. And then they put him in Congress. And as I said before, um, he was the one Republican who really could argue finances. In fact, I one time I had the experience. I was doing research in what used to be called the uh, Virginia Historical Society in Richmond. And I came across a letter from another prominent 1790s Republican intellectual, of Virginia, sometimes Senator John Taylor of Caroline, in which Taylor mm-hmm. said, you know, I don't really understand how banks work. <laughs> so <laughs> this was. Taylor had written this in the 18-teens, right? Yeah. So essentially, there was a paucity of knowledge of financial matters among leading Republicans sure. the exception, yeah. So he ends up being an obvious choice for Jefferson to be Treasury Secretary. get the two of them apparently got along great. Jefferson, looking back on it uh, many years later, remembered that when he had been president, there had not been one significant argument in his cabinet. So the way they formulated policy is that the cabinet members would meet. And, you know, you had a tr- the, the attorney general post was a part time job in those days. And the war secretary was a nobody. So essentially it ended up being a, a conversation among Jefferson, Gallatin, and Madison. Mm-hmm. And Jefferson thought we were all just always congenial. We always essentially agreed with each other. And we seemed, he thought, to come to write opinions, which, you know, we can talk about that, too. But anyway, Gallatin was a very interesting guy. Not only was he interested in these political matters, but he had lots of other interests, too. He was really interested in American Indians, in their languages, in their cultures. Um, he ended up also, Gallatin did, being the founder of what is now called New York University, which mm-hmm. reputedly is one of the five or six best universities in America. Um, and he had, he had more than one interesting career Gallatin did. Yeah, absolutely. He's a fascinating guy.
0: All right. Uh, moving ahead, because there's, uh, so so much stuff to cover in these three administrations. I know we're not going to get to all of it, but, uh, we'll talk about, uh, start with the big one, uh, which is the Louisiana purchase, which you call, uh, the most important success of the entire Virginia dynasty period. And, I you know, uh, I think that's. Know, patently patently true uh but tell us a little bit about the the context surrounding the purchase and the uh the constitutional questions it provoked at least <laughs> at least it provoked for for jefferson he might have been the only one <laughs> that, that it provoked questions for but uh he has some questions about its constitutional uh constitutionality but yeah tell us about the, the context surrounding how you know how we're going to purchase louisiana from napoleon
1: well, of course, the word Louisiana nowadays conjures a small to medium sized state on the Gulf Coast. But in those days, French Louisiana extended from the Gulf Coast into what is now Canada and essentially included everything between the Mississippi River and the Rocky Mountains. So it was a gigantic region. And there had been the experience of the Spanish, it was. <laughs> It was theoretically Spanish and then it became property of the French, or at least the French were kind of supervising it in the way that Napoleon could kind of uh, elbow his way into controlling Spanish possessions. So um, uh, Jefferson had written before he became president, there is on the map exactly one spot, the possessor of which must be an enemy of the United States, and that is New Orleans. So he thought it was it was absolutely essential that the United States possess New Orleans. And um, he instructed his, that is the United States, uh, what we would now call ambassador to France, a New Yorker named Livingston to ask the French about purchasing New Orleans. And after not receiving any kind of positive response for a while, he sent his junior lieutenant, James Monroe, to France to help Livingston do this. And the day that Monroe arrived, apparently before Monroe could have any role in this, um, Livingston had asked the French foreign minister, Talleyrand, who's one of the most interesting people in the history of the world, I think, um, he had asked Talleyrand about this idea of buying New Orleans from the French. And supposedly hearing this question, Talleyrand looked at him for a moment and then he smiled and then he said, suppose I were to sell you all of Louisiana. (laughs) Now, you might think if you were a diplomat, you know, you want to keep your cards close to your (laughs) vest. You'd be like, um, okay. (laughs) How how could he not just – surely his jaw must have dropped. Sure, absolutely. Just impossible. So uh, what ended up happening was that Livingston and Monroe – well, as I said, Livingston agreed to buy it before Monroe had any role in this. But then the two of them agreed on a price that was far in excess of – several times – the amount of money that, that that they had been told they could spend to buy New Orleans on this Louisiana territory. And, of course, they were buying far, far, far more land than they had been sent to buy. And so they send the news of this back to North America. Secretary of State Madison is just ecstatic. This is how could we have anything better happen? And, right. of course, the answer is, well, you really couldn't. Um, and... Apparently the other people in the cabinet, leading Republican figures in Congress, they all thought this was wonderful. The only person who had a real problem with it was the president. And the president, his answer was, well, what about the constitutional issue? And the question is, well, what was the constitutional issue? Jefferson thought the constitutional issue was that there wasn't an express statement in the constitution that the president could could enter into treaties to purchase land. But the Secretary of State, Madison, said, well, since Article 2 of the Constitution says that the president can enter into treaties with the advice and consent of the Senate, and it doesn't say what kind of treaties, we have to read that as including common kinds of treaties. So nowadays and then, that would include treaties of alliance, commercial treaties, peace treaties. In those days, it, it would have included, although today it would not include, I can't remember the last time I heard of one of these, but... Uh, In those days, they were pretty common in Europe, treaties to buy and sell territory. So Madison's argument was, this is not even a problem. I don't see an issue here. And as far as I can tell, and I think I'd know if there were anyone else, there was no other significant Republican who thought there was a constitutional problem. The only one who thought there was a problem was Jefferson. So Jefferson's instruction to Madison after they had discussed this in the cabinet was, that Madison should draft an amendment, and Jefferson drafted an amendment, or at least began scribbling about an amendment, and while this is going on, uh, Livingston over in France sends a letter to Secretary Madison saying, hey, Napoleon is talking about reneging on this agreement. You better hurry up, right? So we don't know whether Bonaparte was thinking eh, maybe I don't want to sell Louisiana. Or he was thinking, eh, I wish they'd hurry up and send my money. I know I can <laughs> goose from here. It's hard uh, to tell with
0: Napoleon. You never know.
1: Yeah. So whatever, whatever the um, reasoning was, apparently Napoleon had kind of uh, told the Americans they'd better hurry it up. And at that point, Jefferson's conclusion was, well, sometimes the chief executive will have to take emergency measures and – that he's judged to be for the good of the country and just hope the people would forgive him. Mm -hmm. So Jefferson went ahead with this, even though he was not persuaded that it was constitutional. And actually there's another part of the story is um, a Senator from Massachusetts, John Quincy Adams um, went to Madison and asked him whether he would like Adams to introduce a constitutional amendment in the Senate. And Madison told him, no, there wasn't any need to do that. And so in his diary, which famously is acerbic about everybody not named Adams, (laughs) um, Madison uh, Adams says, well, all that argument that the Republicans made in the 1790s about the constitution, it was just political. They didn't mean any of it. If they meant any of it, they'd want an amendment before they did this. So I think it was all just political. I don't give them any credence at all anymore. And that was the way some people read it. But in general, The Louisiana Purchase, which went through on the basis I've just described, was was beyond popular. Essentially, the the Jeffersonians in Jefferson's during Jefferson's presidency got rid of all internal taxes and suddenly they provided land that any any American could have for a song and resolved the main problem that people had uh, on the East Coast by this point. I'm, I'm sitting in Connecticut as we speak. People in Connecticut who had more than one son no longer had land to give to their sons because there wasn't any unsettled land left in Connecticut. Yeah. But now, if given the, uh, given the Louisiana Purchase, Jefferson said at one point, well, we're going to have land enough to farm. Our, our descendants are going to have land enough to farm to the thousandth and thousandth generation. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, he, obviously, he wasn't contemplating large scale immigration. Right. But uh, there was there was a ring of truth in this. And it essentially it made the Republicans politically invincible. That This was really a, the main reason why, by the end of the Monroe administration, the Federalist Party had ceased to exist.
0: Yeah. His reaction to the, the Louisiana purchase offer, uh, Jefferson's kind of reminds me. You ever hear that story about. Uh how uh, Paul McCartney wrote uh, the song yesterday or like the, the, the Genesis episode. So basically uh, Paul McCartney had like a dream. I, th- I think he had like the music came to him in a dream. Right. And so he was right. playing it and then he was, so he wrote out the melody and everything. And then he was like, no, that has to be like, that's so, that has to be somebody else's song. Right, that's yeah. too familiar. And he sat on it for like a year and just went around like asking people like, Hey, have you heard this before? You know, and, uh, finally he had enough people tell him that like, no, I don't think that's, I don't think that you crib that. I think that's unique to you that he finally, (laughs) that he finally was like, well, okay, well, I guess if, you know, no one else has heard this, then I guess it has to be mine, you know, that sort of thing. So, yeah, anyway, um, all right. So moving on, uh, into Madison's, uh, presidency, Madison's administration and, uh, You talk about the amity of Jefferson's cabinet uh, with Madison and Gallatin, uh, the rest being sort of inconsequential. But uh, uh, (laughs) the inconsequentiality of Madison's cabinet is going to unfortunately um, have um, some uh, damaging repercussions for the country (laughs) during Madison's uh, administration. So how did Madison manage to pick such a terrible cabinet.
1: <laughs> well, you alluded earlier to the fact that the first choice that Madison made for his cabinet was to elevate Gallatin from Treasury Secretary to Secretary of State, and this meant butting heads with Republicans in the Senate who were generally favor to the Jefferson uh, favorable to the Jeffersonians, but had their own uh, ideas about who should hold this position. So he was told, uh, Madison was by a Virginia Senator, uh, who's actually another Albemarle County guy. That's Jefferson's and for some time Monroe's residence. um, that, well, there were enough re- Republicans who opposed Gallatin being elevated to secretary of state for him to feel confident that the Senate would not confirm the appointment. And so, rather than push the question, which you'd think he ought to have done anyway, but after all, it's it's a new Republican president. There's a Republican majority in the Senate. Are they really going to block his choice for Secretary of State? Um, Madison just decided, okay, I won't even I won't even put this forward. And what that meant was, among other things, it meant that. Gallatin was going to leave the cabinet during the first term of the Madison administration. Gallatin ended up being the longest serving major cabinet officer in American history. He was, he was treasury secretary for over 11 years, Mm -hmm. but, um, Madison wanted him to be Secretary of State, and he apparently wanted to be Secretary of State, and he was an obvious choice. He was a European noble. He right. uh, was, of course, perfectly fl- fluid in French. It's in his blood.
0: A- it's in his blood. Pardon me? It's in his blood to be. Yes, yeah, that's-
1: French, Italian. He, yeah. he, seriously, this was just such a bad decision by Madison's, and one has the feeling that he just made it kind of on the spur of the moment. And so what he ended up with instead was, the brother of a Maryland senator as his as his first secretary of state, and that guy was totally incompetent. And by the time that first of Madison's secretaries of state got to the end of his tenure, Madison was writing half of the correspondence that was going out under the sec- over, over the secretary of state's name. Mm-hmm. So rather than the secretary being an assistant to the president, the president was assisting the secretary, and he was also trying to undercut. The Madison administration because his brother the senator uh, had his own ideas about what the political future ought to be and it, it included that the brother should have a senior place too. You know the whole thing was just a debacle and besides those besides the chief role and and Gallatin having to leave he also Madison in his first among his first choices for the cabinet he chose a Navy secretary, Paul Hamilton from South Carolina, who, according to everybody's account of him, was so severely overwhelmed with alcoholism that every day he would be incapacitated by lunchtime. But he really just could not work because he was always drunk. And uh, he chose a war secretary whose qualification for this position was that he had been a surgeon in the Continental Army. You might think, Is being a surgeon qualification for being war secretary, (laughs) let alone being a surgeon in a war that ended in 1783? Here, we're talking about 1809, right? What does that have to do with anything? And that's one of the main aspects of the story of the Madison administration is the president just peopled the federal government with completely unqualified or ill-suited people, not only in the Political jobs, But in the military, of course, the main event of the Madison administration is this war, yeah. the War of 1812. Uh, both in the military jobs and in the political jobs, Madison just appointed a string of people who can only be described as having been incompetent, unqualified, ill-suited. And in fact, Madison didn't deny it. So uh, when he was in re- when Madison was in retirement, he was a cooper somebody who cooperated with the sons of various people who had been prominent in the revolution in writing biographies of their, of their relatives. So there were several of the major characters in the revolution whose relatives wrote books about them by the time Madison was an old man. And he got a letter Madison did from a younger generation Lee. Of course there had been several members of the Lee family who were important congressmen and diplomats and military figures during the revolution and this younger generation lee wrote to madison and asked some questions about the revolution about the politics about his relatives and they went back and forth a few times and then finally uh, the lee the lee wrote a letter to madison and said well you know there's going to come a point in my account at which i'm going to have to say something about your appointments how shall i describe these appointments I concede that I can't think of an, an administration that had worse appointments than yours. And you might think, well, an ex-president getting a letter like this is just going to throw it in the garbage. And that's the end of the correspondence. But apparently, Madison must have thought that he needed to explain to posterity how there had ended up being these just hideous choices for his cabinet posts and for for generals. And, you know, so he wrote back to the guy and he said, well, you mustn't lose sight of the various considerations that have to be taking, taken into account in selecting somebody from one of these high offices. The fellow has to have been, first of all, possessed of substantial financial resources because he's going to be living in Washington, right? So he's got to have money himself. He's not going to be paid a salary. And secondly, he has to have been uh, connected with the people who were at the head of the Republican Party in his home state. And there had to be geographic diversity, and he lists several qualifications. One thing that's not on the list is he has to have been expert in the policy area I was appointing him to deal with. Or You think would be to, the most
0: important qualification. You
1: might right? think yeah. if you were choosing a general, you'd want somebody who had been in the military. You know, you might think if you were choosing a Navy secretary, you'd want a guy who was able to do the job, say, afternoon. You might think. But anyway, the point is Madison didn't defend himself. He didn't say you're wrong or that's not fair. You don't understand. Instead, he said, essentially, yeah, I can see those appointments were terrible, but I really didn't have any choice because here are the five reasons, or however many there were. Well,
0: the fear, uh, I mean, you you allude to in the book, part of the reason he doesn't um, uh, nominate Gallatin for Secretary of State is there's the fear that they're going to vote him down. And if that's the case, then Gallatin, uh, just as – as a point of honor and just sort of to save face, he's going to have to resign from uh, uh, the government or from the administration uh, uh, totally and not even serve as secretary of the treasury. That's and, right. so, and so Madison says like, well, I, you know, let me, I'm not sure how this is going to happen. So let me just make sure that he's still in the government and somebody I can rely on. And he, and he basically does use him as sort of a, a sort of a, quasi secretary of state, uh, for the most part, or at least like, you know, bouncing ideas off him and having discussions about what's going on, uh, in the rest of the world, that sort of thing.
1: Yes. He does that a bit, but again, he also, Madison yeah. does a bit of writing the main. Yeah. Okay. So one of the main things that went on in those days in these jobs, it doesn't go on now because we have instantaneous communication, but one of the main functions of the secretary of state was to write diplomatic correspondence. And this fellow he ended up with, this Marylander whose brother was a senator, and that's why he ended up in the job. Um, he couldn't write these things. He could not do the work. So uh, it's true that it's true that Gallatin might have quit immediately if he had been nominated and his appointment had not been confirmed. But by accepting, you know, by preemptively surrendering in mm-hmm. this case, Madison essentially doomed himself to having an incompetent secretary of state virtually throughout his first term. Right? So that's what you got. And this is just typical of Madison's behavior. Now on, on the other hand, (laughs) I don't think Jefferson would have had to to worry about this kind of thing because Jefferson had, you know, more purchase on the affections of Republicans. Mm -hmm. So he would have been more confident that the Senate would have confirmed his uh, nomination. But still, uh, while it's true that you could have Gallatin remains Treasury Secretary if you didn't try to elevate him to the first job. You know, you could leave him in the second cabinet job if you didn't try to elevate him to the first job. What this meant was um, a kind of domino effect on Mm -hmm. lower appointments. And it was was just a debacle.
0: Yeah. So back to the War of 1812. (laughs) Uh, So (laughs) just how badly unprepared were we? for the war of 1812 and how completely much and utterly. <laughs> how <completely> much <laughs> and utterly unprepared. Yeah, so how and much after, of the uh, how much of the fault for that falls on Madison in particular or or the Republicans in general?
1: Well, former President Jefferson said as this was being considered uh, I that he thought a war with the British would be a matter of just a couple of weeks marching. So he thought and this seems to have been the strategy of the Madison administration was war would be declared. The United States would launch an army into Canada. It would take Quebec and Montreal. And then the British would hear that war had been declared <laughs> <laughs> and some kind of resolution would be negotiated. that involved giving Canada back in exchange for an end to the hostile actions of the British Navy and the, uh, embargo on American trade with Europe that the Americans had found to be cause for the war in the first place. But as this was being, as the war was being or declaring war was being considered in Congress, some of the people who were antsy about it or even opposed to the idea of declaring war said, you you want to declare war on Britain, but you have no men, you have no ships, you have no money. So, <laughs> How are you going to declare war on, you know, the mightiest empire in the world with the biggest Navy the world has ever seen. And our main complaint is we can't trade with Europe. You know, if, if, if you're worried that you couldn't trade with Europe, would you think declaring war on Britain and the Royal Navy would be the way to get around this problem, especially if you weren't at all ready for it. So we ended up with a similar situation in regard to military leadership as the one we were just discussing in relation to cabinet appointments, Hmm. the, The American generals in particular were just awful. They're just other than William Henry Harrison, who was competent, and Andrew Jackson, who actually was a talented general. The American generals were terrible to the point of one fellow who hearing (laughs) within a fortification (laughs) with his troops, hearing shells being fired by the British. Apparently, he knelt in a corner and started mumbling. And people thought he had shell shock. We would call it shell shock. But that was that was one example of the way that some of these generals led their troops. They there were several of them who just had not the slightest idea what they were doing. And this was clear from the beginning. So the yeah. war was, was it, badly conceived. The Ameri the the Republicans' uh, policy had been not to be prepared for war, right? That we're going to get rid of all the internal taxes. Uh, Jefferson says we don't want to spend a lot of money on a war to be fought. Quote: We don't know when. So we're, famously, Washington had said, "If you want to avoid war, prepare for it." And Jefferson didn't believe that. So if you <laughs> just if you want to avoid war, just don't start one, right? <laughs> and don't tax people to prepare for a war because then you're just spending money. Yeah. So. If- all the chickens of, of the 1790s arguments with the Federalists came home to roost in this regard. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's uh, we have Jackson to thank uh, for us, uh, everyone kind of thinking that the War of 1812 was an American victory because of the, the, the Battle of New Orleans, yeah, which, the which that, actually it, happened after mean, the, the peace was signed. That's I, right. I, but, but yeah, but without yeah. that, like, eh, it's, I mean, at best, it's a draw for the United yeah, States, well, you
1: know. There's a, you know, there's a <laughs> there's a famous saying in Mexico, apparently, uh, poor Mexico, uh, so far from God and so close to the United States. <laughs> and uh, Winston Churchill said, you know, that God s- smiles on uh, drunken sailors and the Americans or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Right. So the, the Republicans were just so fortunate that they had fallen into this Louisiana Purchase, as we were just discussing. Hmm. And then... Um, it came that the uh, the war in Europe turned in the direction of the British, and so they finally decided, well, they didn't need to continue this, this naval policy that had so irked the Republicans. And word of the treaty agreement with, in which the British gave us a re- restoration of the status quo on bellum. In other words... The territory, the American territory that the British had taken from the United States was returned, and even though it didn't happen. I mean, basically, they had taken northern New England. They could have kept it if they wanted to. Mm-hmm. But they decided, eh, we'd rather just have the war be over. So they gave back the taken territory. They never actually agreed to the main demands the Americans were making, which were an end of impressment, that is, sea, seaborne conscription of American ships crewmen into the royal navy on the spot that was really irksome to americans they wanted that to end and they wanted free access to european ports and a british concession that the americans had a right to access to european ports they didn't get any of these things the british didn't agree to that they didn't agree to stop impressment they didn't agree to any of it but word of jackson's stupendous victory outside new orleans and word of the treaty got to washington got to the east coast basically at the same time so people generally understood what had happened was the americans had won the war well the americans had not won the war <laughs> the british just decided why should we keep fighting so they stopped fighting right all right
0: yeah. um we've already we're right up next one hour do you have time for a couple more questions because sure, yeah literally. yeah because <laughs> uh, got to get to monroe here um yeah as you mentioned uh you know uh, by the time of Monroe's second term, um, there's sort of not really any sort of political opposition anymore. He's the only president other than than Washington to run for re-election unopposed. Um, you know, we've all uh, heard of uh, the era of good feelings and all that. But uh, why is it called the era of good feelings? And um, uh, talk about some of the 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 highlights of Monroe. Uh, Monroe's administration Monroe's presidency like for one for me the big one uh, I gotta give him thanks because I'm down here in Florida so thank you to James Monroe and Secretary of State John Quincy Adams for 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 purchasing Florida from Spain for a couple million bucks so uh, so you know big uh, hats off to them for that. but yeah, so what are the some of the why is it called the era of good feelings and and what are uh, uh, what is this period like and how? Uh, And what are some of the highlights of
1: of Monroe's uh, presidency? Well, I mentioned before that Monroe had been in the Continental Army during the war. And he thought of himself as a Continental Army veteran for the rest of his life. This was very important to him. And when he became president, he decided to recapitulate something that President Washington had done, which was to take tours of the country, he thought. Americans needed to see their president. In fact, Mm -hmm. this is kind of foreign to us now, but um, if you didn't actually find yourself looking at the president, you would never see him. (laughs) So you wouldn't know what he looked like. You'd have no idea. So Monroe thought, as Washington had, he would travel around the country and he would inspect the uh, nation's defenses, which he and Calhoun were working on refurbishing in the wake of the War of 1812. And... So he took these trips, and perhaps surprisingly, when he got to the former Federalist uh, strongholds of Hartford and Boston and Philadelphia, um, there were huge turnouts of crowds in these places, gigantic concourses of people who had come out to see the uh, processions into town with the local civic leaders and the local politicians and Monroe, in every instance, would give a little speech, and they'd, you know, they'd have cannon fire, and the local mm-hmm. Continental Army veterans would come to meet him. And at one point, one of the Federalist newspapers in Boston ran a story that said, "Well, it seems that we've now entered on a, an era of good feelings." So it was actually some of the most vociferous opponents of the Republicans who dubbed this era the air of good feelings. And what it really meant was Jefferson's hope had come to be reality that there really was no more partisan division. Mm -hmm. And his statement in his first inaugural address, where all Republicans were all federalists, seemed that was true. That was what Jefferson hoped for. And that was what Monroe hoped for too. He, like Jefferson, didn't think there should be parties. So we have a kind of commonplace in American society now that, well, everybody among these founders had, read The Federalist and we're all taken in by all the uh, political science ruminations of Hamilton, Madison, and Jay, but uh, Madison, you know, in The Federalist said that he thought political parties were natural. This is just the way people are. Their psychology is. They divide into groups, maybe by uh, ethnicity, it may be by economic interest, it may be by their religion, it may be because they're subscribers to some leader's philosophy. Apparently, Neither Jefferson nor Monroe, were both close friends of Madison's, uh, believed this at all. And so it seemed party was gone, and people thought that was a good thing. And of course, the Constitution had been written without the idea of party, and um, Monroe thought, well, this is this shows that it's all been a big success. Everybody was a Jeffersonian by the end of this story. At least yeah. that's the way the Jeffersonians saw it. Yeah.
0: Right, but the interesting thing is, uh, you know, right before this, uh, you know, during the middle of the war of 1812, and beforehand, in the years beforehand, there had been a, uh, a a prominent uh, secessionist impulse in in New, in England. New England. I know no a lot New of people, England. a lot of people, you know, think of you know secession as being like a southern firebrand kind of thing, <laughs> but the new englanders were like you know the the original secessionists during this period
1: well you could argue that the declaration of independence is a secession document true but but anyway yes there had been prominent leaders in new england um including timothy pickering who had been george Washington's secretary of state and had been a u.s senator he was from massachusetts and he was a secessionist and gouverneur morris who was from New York, but it represented Pennsylvania in the Philadelphia Convention, then had been a U.S. senator. He was a secessionist, and these people were cooperating their efforts. And basically, they had the idea that these Republicans, their foreign policy is just awful. So they thought Napoleon and the French Revolution generally was anti-Christian. It stood for anti-Christian behavior. It stood for an anti-Christian foreign policy. And the Americans should be siding with the British. But or at least they should lean toward the British, but the, the, of course the Republican foreign policy was, if anything, hostile to the British, and culminating in a war with the British. So um, the idea of secession percolated in the beginning of the book during the Jefferson administration, but when the War of 1812 came around, the governors in New England, not only in New England, the governors in New England were totally uncooperative. In fact, Governor strong from Massachusetts was essentially cooperating with the British. If you uh, were a, a British naval captain and you were short on provisions, you could, you could land in Martha's Vineyard or Nantucket and have your, your uh, problems uh, solved. And um, so it was really shocking to people that Monroe received this kind of jubilation wherever he went, not only in the South, not only in the Middle States, um so that's an interesting aspect of the story too mm-hmm. and uh last question before we uh wrap
0: it up or second to last question so uh the monroe doctrine how much credit does james monroe give for the monroe doctrine and how much credit should we give to john quincy adams should it be the adams doctrine or should it be the monroe doctrine
1: well of course <laughs> uh, i mentioned several minutes ago that monroe was a very successful president. And the chief reason was that he had these two brilliant leaders in his cabinet, uh, Calhoun and Adams. And uh, y- you said something about the purchase of Florida. That was a result of uh, cabinet deliberations. Uh, yeah. The Adams on East treaty. Yeah. 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 Involving uh, Adams and Calhoun. And th- that was one instance in which the two of them disagreed. That would come back to bite Calhoun <laughs> decades later. Um, but the, Uh, The Monroe Doctrine was something that had been discussed in the cabinet. What happened was there was a communication from the British. They would like the Americans to join in a joint statement that the British government and the U.S. government would prevent any European country from recolonizing any former part of the Spanish Empire. And apparently in the cabinet, now the way the cabinet deliberations worked in all three of these administrations, and. Unlike now, cabinet deliberations were actually policy-making um, operations. But the way the cabinet deliberations went was, the president would lay out the problem, and then they would start with the opinion of the least senior of the cabinet members, which would be the attorney general in those time in those days, a part-time job, and they would, you know, proceed up to the secretary of state, who was the most senior. So uh, when they talked about the um, proposal from the British that led to the Monroe Doctrine, uh, the other cabinet members were all for it. And when they finally got to John Quincy Adams, he said, well, I I don't think this is a good idea at all because if we say, yes, we'll join in this joint statement that we won't allow recolonization, uh, the two countries will join together to prevent it. What that'll mean is essentially we're agreeing we're going to follow the British in whatever decision they make about European meddling in the Western Hemisphere affairs. We don't want to do that. So Adams said, if the United States didn't agree, the British would, do, would enforce their policy anyway. They would still keep, you know, Austria from sending an army across the Atlantic to uh, invade some former Spanish colony, and the Americans wouldn't have to be involved in it. They could join if they wanted to, but really, this was all about what the Royal Navy was going to do for now, because the American Navy wasn't. Wasn't significant. On the other hand, he said, if we just stay out of this, if we don't uh, join in it, we can make a separate statement that we will not tolerate uh, European recolonization of any former Spanish colonies. And then the advantage of doing that separately will be someday when the United States are a major power and they all were expecting this to happen someday when the United States are a major power we'll be able to point back and say look two centuries ago we we announced this policy this remains our policy it's nothing new and we're not going to allow European countries to to meddle in Latin American affairs so the fact that this was done by the US independently was John Quincy Adams idea but um, it was Monroe who chose his argument over the one that the rest of the cabinet was making that the U.S. should join with British. So uh, we want to give John Quincy Adams credit, uh, but it's ultimately it was Monroe's decision. Right, right. Okay.
0: Alright, well um, I don't want to keep you any longer since we've already gone long. I mean, there was lots of lots of stuff we didn't get a chance to get to. You know, the, oh God, the, the Aaron Burr uh, trial, the Justice Chase impeachment, the... Embargo- yeah, we weren't saying anything
1: about the courts at all. The,
0: embargo-, the embargo Act, I mean, God, uh, the Missouri yeah, Compromise, that. all that stuff,
1: you know. You could always have part two if you wanted. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, I'm that sounds great. That. Okay, cool.
0: Um, All right, but, but before we go, um, last question, the one I generally ask everybody, the exit question I ask everybody when, um, when they come on here, it's, uh, you know, what would you... What would you like the audience to get out of this book? You know, what's or what's the what's the one thing you'd want a reader to take away from having read it?
1: One thing. Hmm. <clears throat> well, there really <laughs> there are two things I'd like readers to take. OK, from it. that's fine. One is that I think that. There is a lot about the Jeffersonian Republicans vision of the way the government should behave and the way the country should be guided or not by the federal government that's attractive. So uh, understanding the history of their administrations, I think, can help one to weigh the merits of the completely different political economy that they preferred, the one that's totally different from the one we have now. That's one thing. Another thing is, That a lot of the cartoon version of these people we've heard in the major media and seen in the streets in the last three or four years is Mm -hmm. just inaccurate. Uh, So, for example, we didn't really talk about this, but when it comes to the slavery question, Mm -hmm. uh, these three fellows were all hostile to slavery and they, uh, they took significant, really significant steps against slavery. And those are all described in the book. Some of them you've probably heard of and some of them you probably haven't. But the book actually begins with a discussion of Jefferson's first inaugural address. But then there's a significant consideration of events that were going on in and around Richmond, Virginia, while Jefferson's election was pending. And what had happened was, we think, the biggest slave conspiracy in American history was breaking out. Around Governor Monroe's capital, just as his political chieftain, Jefferson, was about to be elected president.
0: Yeah, he was and the target that, of the of the revolt.
1: Yes, the yeah. whole point of the revolt was to kidnap Governor Monroe. And so Jefferson and Monroe corresponded about this. Uh, I give details in the book of the way that that was working out, but for the current purposes, Jefferson and Monroe corresponded about this. And the editor of the papers of James Monroe says this correspondence marks the first known time that James Monroe said he hoped that the day would come when there was not slavery in Virginia anymore. And um, the two of them have interesting uh, mutual ruminations about what they should do. What, how would you handle this fact that you have this slave revolt? So um, it's just a really interesting story. Monroe as I say, was the target of it. He knew he was the target of it. And yet when people were convicted of being participants, he pardoned some of them, even though they were obviously guilty. Um, And he and Jefferson are trying to work out what could happen with these people. Jefferson's idea was colonization. So he had, he, in fact, he and Monroe both said, well, we have to consider these people to be criminals, but anybody else would think they were heroes. Both Monroe and Jefferson say this. Anybody else would think they were heroes. Jefferson says they would be good citizens for anyone else. So we should try to find someplace else to send them. Um, Of course, what they're saying is, of course, these people are are criminals to us. We have to treat them as criminals because they what? They they don't want to be slaves. Yeah, they want their freedom. (laughs) Right. We would not want to be slaves either. So we should try to find someplace else where they can go be free. And Jefferson says they would make good citizens. So just kind of imagine, you know, as you're reading this stuff, you have to be thinking, but if I were James Monroe, what would I do? You would think, well, I, of course, I wouldn't enforce slavery. But if you're not going to enforce slavery, you can't be the governor of Virginia. But it's, if you quit being the governor of Virginia, then what? The person who suc- succeeds you in that office might be somebody who likes slavery. Would that be better for the slaves? And then I mentioned before that he pardoned several of the people who were convicted of what? Of con- of participating in this conspiracy to kidnap him, right? right. So anyway, the whole thing is just fascinating, I think. And there are other parts in the book where uh, Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe do very, very significant things against slavery, including finally at Calhoun's insistence in the cabinet, Monroe signs off on the Missouri Compromise, which Jefferson's cousin and by this time former House Majority Leader John Randolph Roanoke says, well, that means the end of slavery. Because eventually there are going to be senators from all these new states, and they're going to be states without slavery, and they're going to vote to amend the Constitution to get rid of slavery. And you know what? James Monroe knew that. Mm-hmm. James Monroe knew that. So, uh, again, the cartoon version of these people is just completely wrong. It's completely wrong. And I think if you read this book, you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about.
0: Well, right, because the cartoon version isn't there to... Enlighten, it's there to, it's its own uh, myth-making, I guess. Right, it's propaganda. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, a a very high proportion of the population has bought it. Yes, that is awesome. Yes. All right.
0: Okay, well, uh, before we go, is there anything else uh, you want to plug? Any other appearances or anything else you're working on coming up or anything like Uh, that? Well,
1: there are things like that, but the main thing is I hope people are going to read this book.
0: All right, great. Okay. Well, again, the book is The Jeffersonians, The Visionary Presidencies of Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe. Uh, fantastic, fantastic book, everybody. Um, like I said, uh, off the top of my head, I don't really know any other, any other books that, that look at these three administrations uh, in one volume like this. And the book is, I think, as you mentioned, uh, Dr. Goodsman, that it's uh, basically split into thirds. You know, a third on Jefferson, a third on Madison, a third on Monroe. Um, but uh, yeah, just a very interesting, um, very interesting book, uh, very interesting narrative, and it was nice to um, have all them uh, together like that in in one unit, as you know, thought of, thinking of them as um, almost <laughs> almost one entity, you know, instead of three separate administrations like that I think that was uh, um, uh, a nifty way of looking at it so so again the book the Jeffersonians the visionary presidencies of Jefferson Madison and Monroe uh, the the author dr. Kevin RC Goodsman so dr. Goodsman thank you very very much for coming on the podcast and discussing the book with me and thank you very much for you know uh, actually taking the time and writing the book and getting it out there so that you know we can all we all can uh, read it and enjoy it you're welcome. All right. Thanks. No problem. And again, if you like this podcast, please consider leaving us a five-star review and sharing with your friends. And if you have any questions or comments uh, about the podcast, uh, anything like that, you can reach out to me at uh, tbenson at heartland.org. That's uh, T-B-E-N-S-O-N at and heartland.org. And for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to heartland.org. And we do have our uh, Twitter account for the podcast. So if you have any, again, questions or comments... Or anything like that. Uh you can also reach out to us there, you know, give us a follow, send us a DM, all that sort of stuff. Uh you can reach out to us at our what is it? It's at Illbooks, at I L L Books, so make sure you check that out. And yeah, that's pretty much it. So thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you guys next time. Take care. Love you, Robbie. Love you, Mom. Bye bye.
2: You are a carry. That's where the cotton that's where the cotton and the and cotton, cotton paint is gold. That's where the birds and the birds, the the birds, yeah, wobble sweet. In the sweet, and where this the mine and the of mine Yet long and go cotton and the cotton and the and to the